Communities in California have deep connections to the places around them. The landscape, mountains, valleys, rivers, ocean, has often dictated where people have settled and how they've lived. Communities even go so far as to define themselves by these places. In these cases, they tie their identities to geographic locations through the names they give them and the landmarks they establish. But in order to do all of that, people and communities have to come to know a place first. They may visit a place or look at pictures of it. They might learn about its past. All sorts of things that, in many ways, shape how we all understand who belongs in a place and who doesn't. And that's important, especially if it's a place you call home. We have always felt we belong. My family's been here for a while, and, and I've always known that. One of the most impactful ways we come to know about places is through the stories we tell about them. Often, we call those stories history, and that history holds power. Whether they're accurate or not, in the United States, we have master narratives that we all learn. California's master narrative revolves around a set of traditional stories about gold mining 49ers, Spanish missionaries, and westward moving homesteaders. It's a powerful state mythology that's generally focused on white male pioneers. But this focus ignores the long presence of black settlers within California. So in this episode, we're going to discuss one way early African-American rural settlers have been written out of state history through how we acknowledge California's landscape. And so let's put first things first. If we're going to look at history, let's actually look at history. I'm Caroline Collins, and this is the Calac Roots podcast. Calac Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming to shed light on current issues in agriculture. This is the second episode in our We Are Not Strangers Here series. This series, which draws its name from writer Ravi Howard, highlights hidden histories of African-Americans who have shaped California's food and farming culture from early statehood to the present. This six-part series is also connected to a traveling exhibit with the same name. The exhibit was originally designed to travel throughout California. We printed big, beautiful banners full of all kinds of photos from the archives that accompany the stories we're telling. But then the pandemic happened. And so now we're digitally reconceiving the We Are Not Strangers Here exhibit so that people can still enjoy it even during the pandemic. It's not up yet, but we're working on it. Please check out www.agroots.org for updates. The natural world is often associated with a sense of timelessness, which, geologically speaking, makes sense. It can take hundreds of thousands of years for a mountain range to form, and some rivers have been slicing through the earth, forming canyons and throughways for millions of years. So it's no wonder that when people want to tie themselves to a place, one way they go about it is by connecting themselves to the landscape and how they name it and the stories they tell about it. Stories that often describe who arrived to a piece of the natural world and when. In other words, origin stories that create a sense of rootedness. And California is no different. Throughout its colonial history, folks in power have named and renamed geographic places and features in manners that provide official versions of state history, regardless of accuracy. So to learn more about all of this, 
We talked to California historian Susan Anderson, our podcast's primary history advisor, and the history curator of the California African American Museum. We asked her about the significance of these origin stories, especially as they relate to Black folks in the Golden State. You know, for me, telling these stories about African Americans in rural California and urban California, too, part of the importance is to reframe. That's because when the story of Black people in California gets told, there's a prevailing framework that often shapes its narrative. But that framework doesn't provide the full picture. There is this just generally accepted framework about migration. And not just any migration, the Great Migration, when between 1915 and 1960, five million Black Americans left the South. Because that's what we're saying when we say migration. At first, the majority of these migrants settled in northern cities like Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and New York. However, later waves of migrants increasingly headed west, choosing to start new lives in Portland and Seattle and urban centers across California, like San Francisco, Oakland, and Los Angeles. So that's the big narrative. And while the Great Migration is certainly an important part of California history, it doesn't fully represent the origins of Black people in the Golden State. Black Americans and people of African descent have been in the state of California before white Americans lived here in any number. In fact, Black people have been in California since the onset of Spanish colonization in the 16th century. African sailors and interpreters, both enslaved and free, first arrived in California with Spanish conquistadors. And by the 18th century, they were part of the original settlers, or pobladores, who established cities like Los Angeles, San Diego, Monterey, and San Jose. For instance, in 1781, half of the pobladores that founded the present-day city of Los Angeles were of African descent, and some were of full Black ancestry. And by 1790, one in five California residents was Afro-Latino, according to the National Park Service. The offspring of these settlers would come to be known as Californios, the native-born Spanish-speaking descendants of the original Spanish colonists and soldiers in Alta California. And they were mostly of mixed indigenous and or African descent. These mixed-race Californios, like Pio Pico, the last governor of Alta California, became the state's economic and political elite after Mexico gained its independence from Spain in 1821. But it's also important to note that not all 19th century Black settlers in the Mexican state of Alta California were born there. Some immigrated from the United States, becoming naturalized citizens of Mexico, before California became a U.S. state. And thousands of black settlers also came to California later in the 19th century as gold seekers, homesteaders, ranchers, and farmers, all decades before the Great Migration ever began. But these stories are too often excluded from California's master narrative. We're working on accomplishing just bringing to light this long-standing presence and involvement in, in rural life in, in California on the part of African Americans. Because in many ways, these stories have to do with questions of belonging in the state. At a certain point, the question is, when do you stop arriving? When are you actually there? And when can you look at the world from the point of view of someone who is rooted in a place? 
Despite being left out of some official histories, many Black families in the state recognize and cherish their long-standing presence. My name is Ryan Ballard, and I am from Los Angeles. And my father's from Los Angeles, and my grandfather's from Los Angeles, and my great-grandfather was from Los Angeles. If you couldn't tell, Ryan Ballard doesn't feel like a stranger in California. You know, I'm a true Angelino, a true Californian, because I'm here and uh, many lines before me were here. Generational lines that each make up an important part of the Ballard's family story. Ryan was the youngest of six children born to older parents, and he grew up surrounded by important black history. Keep in mind, my father was born in 1924, so I, I had older parents, you know, but that was normal for me. It, it, as a kid in elementary school, everyone else said to me, your parents are old, and I thought, well, no, your parents are just young. This is, this is just what I've known. And what he knew was a long line of Ballard Angelinos. You know, I knew my grandfather was born in 1890, and he knew his father, uh, William, which I don't know when he was born, but we just always have known, it was talked about in our family, uh, apparently they owned a lot of property. So these were talked about at, at just family gatherings, it was talked about all the time. It's a proud family lineage. For example, Ryan's father, Reginald Ballard, was a part of the Tuskegee Airmen, a World War II squadron of the first black American aviators. And after the war, he was a firefighter that helped desegregate the Los Angeles Fire Department. And his father, Claudius Ballard, was a prominent physician who served in World War I. So they represented a long and rich Ballard history that, within family lore, stopped with Ryan's great-grandfather, William Ballard, the father of Claudius. It was also a family history that was generally about city folks, people who lived in urban Los Angeles, seemingly far removed from rural California. That all changed in February 2009, after the Los Angeles Times published a story about mapping. I don't know what the opposite would be of, of coincidence, because I, I think there are no coincidences. So I'm, I'm at work. I got the newspaper every morning, and my father called me. That in itself was notable. My father does not call me at work. He does not call me because I should be working. And he said, Ryan, I'm looking at the paper. I said, Dad, me too. They were both reading an LA Times article about the removal of a century-old racial slur from maps of the Santa Monica Mountains. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors had changed the name of a local peak from Negro Head Mountain to Ballard Mountain to commemorate a black pioneer who in 1880 had settled at its base. The article featured a picture from the early 1900s of the settler who was standing at his homestead. By then, he was an elderly man. He stood, a weathered hat upon his head, with his right arm folded across his chest. His name? John Ballard. He said, that fella kind of reminds me of my grandfather. I said, Dad, well obviously that's why we're on the phone because, you know, the Ballard name had struck a chord, clearly, right? Because Ryan had a hunch that maybe his family was in some way connected to John Ballard, and that was enough to get him moving. I called my sister, and uh, I told her to look at the paper. She looked at the paper. She called my sister-in-law, and my sister-in-law had already contacted the author of that article at the LA Times. 
And things kept happening quickly after that, because now more members of the Ballard family suspected that they could be related to that old homesteader in the mountains. So we got in touch with the author of the article, which led us to Patty. Ryan is referring to Patty Coleman. I'm a historian at Moorpark College, and I also research local homesteaders um, and the African-American community in Los Angeles of the 19th century. In fact, it was Professor Coleman's research on John Ballard that helped bring about the mountain's official name change, work that she came to in a roundabout way. Before I started my full-time teaching uh, career, I was working at the National Park Service in the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. And I was asked to do a study on the settlement patterns in the Santa Monica Mountains. It was a typical historical study in its focus on early California pioneers. Homesteading is the quintessential American symbol, right? Because so many people have in their vision what a homesteader is, what an American is, what a pioneer is. The project also involved a lot of archival work, scanning various government records. So I was just scrolling through the the census data and just getting a sense of who are these people that were living out there in 1900 and scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And then Coleman noticed something that caught her attention. I saw in the census a family and for race, there was an N. For Negro, meaning it was a black family. And so that clearly caught me because there just were not many people of color in the mountains at the time. Coleman had come across evidence of an undertold history within the state, and she was intrigued. When I saw this family, I thought, well, who are they? This is really interesting. So I sort of scrapped the larger study and, um, and told people at the Park Service, you know, I think we need to look at this. This new focus led Professor Coleman to further uncover the presence of the Ballard family and their contributions to the community. John Ballard, who was formerly enslaved, may have arrived in California as early as 1848, according to the oral history of his son, William. Then, in 1859, Los Angeles County records show that he married a free Black woman named Amanda. Unlike some rural Black settlers who never fully resided in urban spaces, the Ballards spent a little over two decades in Los Angeles, where John worked as a blacksmith, a teamster, and a firewood salesman. Eventually, he earned enough money to homestead 160 acres in the mountains above Malibu. I mentioned this in my article. Why did a man who was seemingly quite successful living in downtown Los Angeles, who owned quite a bit of property, why did he suddenly pack up and move out to this remote area of the mountains? One reason could have been personal loss. In May of 1871, Amanda died at just 34 due to complications in childbirth. But another likely contributing factor to his move were demographic changes in Los Angeles in the late 1870s and early 1880s that impacted the lives of its Black residents. We have the land boom in Los Angeles, and we've got the railroad bringing all these Easterners and Midwesterners, and you have a real shift in the population in Los Angeles. One of the things that I think also really changed was the expansion and hardening of Jim Crow laws coming to L.A. And that was not the city John knew. When John came here, there there was opportunity for a black man. In fact, John was active in Los Angeles civic life. In 1870, he was part of a successful lawsuit that granted black men the vote in L.A. County. And two years later, he helped establish First African Methodist Episcopal Church, part of the oldest black denomination in the country. 
And I think what started happening at that time was things changed. I think that he just left because of that and went out to the mountains. So in 1880, a year after remarrying a widow named Frances, John packed up and relocated to the Santa Monica Mountains. There, they established a rural life. They grew crops and fruit. John hunted, and from time to time, he went into the city to sell firewood and charcoal for extra money. John Ballard had six or seven kids. Alice was the youngest and the only uh, child left in the family that was still living with them. So she attended an integrated school out in the Conejo Valley. This local mountain school was started by a Ballard neighbor, Mrs. Russell. John's new wife, Frances, had done some work for Russell in the past, helping to care for her kids when they got sick. The Russell children said they used to like to ride out to the Ballard home and, and see what was going on and get some biscuits and things like that. So when Mrs. Russell wanted to open a local school and knew she needed a population threshold to get it open? It was Mrs. Russell who apparently got some of the Ballard kids to come to the school. Um, and essentially, you know, integrated a school. We're talking the 1880s. Alice Ballard attended this school and spent her childhood in the mountains. And when she reached adulthood, she chose to remain there. In 1888, she applied for her own homestead as soon as she was 18. Alice is, is really an interesting figure to me. By 1900, she's living in this remote little canyon by herself with these two children. I mean, her dad wasn't too far away, but far enough to be out there in the middle of the nothing um, by yourself. Alice Ballard's independent life in the mountains above Malibu represents an important part of California history. By 1900, most black women in America were working for other people's, in other people's homes, cooking other people's meals, taking care of other people's kids. However, Alice's autonomy actually follows a larger historical pattern the American West offered many African-American women a chance at economic independence. They're not always represented in pop culture products like Hollywood Westerns and dime novels, and they faced barriers like racism and sexism. But scholars that study Black women in the early West say that African-American women forged lives across the frontier. Some ran successful businesses like laundry enterprises and hotels. Others were educators, journalists, stagecoach drivers, nurses, midwives, and even gun-toting mail carriers, like Mary Fields, who the Smithsonian National Postal Museum describes as fearless, since being a mail carrier in the Old West didn't just mean delivering mail. It also meant protecting it from, quote, bandits, thieves, wolves, and the weather. And those weren't the only dangers African-American women faced in the West. In fact, a black woman named Mrs. Tilgman was killed in California's first stagecoach robbery when she was just riding in the back seat of the Marysville Comptonsville stagecoach. But despite these dangers and the uncertainty of what they may have faced on the frontier, many black women still made the American West their home. For instance, some African-American women even chose new lives in the West as mail-order brides. These women traveled by wagon and train to meet the black men who'd arranged for their trips with the help of older African-American women that acted as matchmakers. And across the West, black women established women's clubs, churches, and communities. In fact, many were notable philanthropists like Biddy Mason, who was the primary founder of First African Methodist Episcopal Church in Los Angeles. She was once enslaved in Mississippi, but won her freedom in a California court and eventually made millions of dollars as a prominent real estate entrepreneur. 
And some, like Alice Ballard, whose records Patty Coleman uncovered, homesteaded. She built her own house, she owns her own land, she's a homesteader, raising these kids, and to me that's fascinating. Coleman's fascination with the Ballards led her to publish a study about the family's seemingly lost history. And one day, after sharing this research at a park service talk for the community, she was approached by a member of the audience. A gentleman by the name of Nick Knoxon came up to me and he said, you know, I live um, off of Canaan, and where I live, there's a mountain behind us, and this is what it's named. I found on these old records in the neighborhood, it was called this. And, you know, it was the pejorative you know, word, and I, I knew that it had to have something to do with John Ballard and, and his family because of the close proximity to where it was. He was referring to Negrohead Mountain and the Santa Monica Mountains. Its name represented a long history of mapping practices where white residents named local places, hills, lanes, passes, by the racial epithets they associated with nearby black homesteaders. As time went by, Sometimes the family names of these settlers were dropped until all that was left were the slurs. And these weren't informal nicknames. In other words, places around the nation like Inward Island and sites using other pejoratives for black people were listed on official government maps. Nearly 800 of them, according to a 2012 NBC News report. It's a practice that also took place across California. For example, portions of the state where black miners pan for gold bore names like Inward Creek and Inward Bar. In the Mojave Desert, where African-American settlers formed a community at the turn of the 20th century, two bluffs were called Piccaninny Buttes. And in rural San Diego County, Inward Nate Grade Road referred to Nathaniel Harrison, a formerly enslaved homesteader who built a cabin and raised sheep on Palomar Mountain. In fact, these names across the state were so prevalent that some early researchers used them to highlight black people's long-standing history in California. For example, in 1919, Delilah Beasley, an African-American historian and reporter, self-published her exhaustive study, The Negro Trailblazers of California. In it, she says that these place names, quote, attest to the presence of blacks in California. In the 1960s, the U.S. Department of Interior began replacing these pejoratives with the term Negro, resulting in new maps across the country that featured place names like Negro Ridge, Negro Creek, and in the peaks above Malibu, Negro Head Mountain. More than 120 years after John Ballard settled in the Santa Monica Mountains, Patty Coleman and a group of local residents set out to commemorate the pioneer's presence. So we got in contact with some other members of the community who were interested in changing the name of the mountain. And then we got the, the LA Board of Supervisors on, involved to ask them to change the name of the mountain. Coleman and the others, however, didn't want to follow the recent route of many renaming efforts. In some cases, communities decided to give these places more neutral, aesthetically pleasing names. But these new names no longer bore any clear ties to earlier black settlers. So then you're losing the history. You're forgetting that those people were there. It was a history they wanted honored with the name of the family that had staked out a life on that mountain. So in 2010, the Board of Supervisors officially changed the name from Negrohead Mountain to Ballard Mountain. It was a remarkable way to re-remember the legacy of early black settlers who contributed to civil rights in the state. 
And then the LA Times covered the story. We said to ourselves, wouldn't it be great if John Ballard still has descendants in the area and they see this article? And as we now know, some folks with the Ballard last name did see the story. And soon... Our entire family, or a good portion of us, um, went and met Patty at Moore Park College. The Ballards and Professor Coleman continued to correspond, and eventually, government records confirmed the family's hunch. John Ballard was indeed the father of Ryan's great-grandfather, William Ballard. Years later, in 2018, the Woolsey Fire tore through portions of mountain ranges in Los Angeles and Ventura counties, burning nearly 100,000 acres of land. It was a devastating natural disaster. Yet, an opportunity suddenly arose out of its ashes. Alice Ballard's 160-acre homestead, where she'd struck out on her own at just 18, was perhaps now accessible for research. So we knew where her homestead was. That was patented in 1900. We knew exactly where the land was, but the land was pretty inaccessible. And there were a couple of Park Service archaeologists who had gone out there years ago to kind of walk it a little bit and, and just look at the land. It was so dense, you really couldn't even get through. But after the fire? They went back out. And lo and behold, I mean, it's a, it was a tragic fire, don't get me wrong, but if there is something positive that came out of it, that land was now opened up. So. When the Cal State Northridge Archaeology Department led a formal survey of Alice Ballard's homestead site, Professor Coleman and members of the Ballard family joined them. Not only could you walk it, but you could literally see features that are associated with the home and artifacts just littered on the ground. They watched the survey team excavate all sorts of items. The pottery really stuck out because to me it was just embedded right there exposed in the dirt. It was amazing. But that wasn't all that was recovered. There were nails, um, there were some uh, pieces of glass, there was historic barbed wire, the bricks stamped with LA Pottery and Brick Company. This was tangible evidence of the lives lived in those mountains. And they weren't always easy lives. Even by moving all the way to the rural homestead, the Ballards didn't fully escape persecution. They were harassed by white neighbors in their mountain home. Their first house was burned down by arsonists. And for decades, the hill where they carved out a life bore an egregious slur. White people gave it that name, simply because they resented the Ballard's presence on that mountain. And it was never intended to be a term of endearment. It simply wasn't. It was meant to hurt, harm, uh, mistreat, devalue, debunk. And that's why this story is so important to tell because we have the freedom to discuss it. For many black people, that was the last word they were called before they were hung and met their maker. It's a reality Ryan Ballard is sure that his great-great-grandfather John Ballard understood all too well. So clearly someone, uh, someone's uh, wanted to try to devalue his existence. So he had to be a man of strong character just to exist and attempt anything and not just throw his hands up and just really wilt away and die. He said, regardless of what's going on, this is what's available to me and this is what I'm going to take advantage of.
Since we spoke with Ryan Ballard and Patty Coleman for this podcast, there's been some exciting news regarding the land Alice Ballard once homesteaded. It's been purchased and will now be managed by several agencies, including the National Park Service. More excavations and study are planned for this year, with the goal of interpreting the site for visitors. Early Black California families like the Ballards insisted on their own belonging. Despite various attempts to make Black settlers feel unwelcome, they persisted in demanding and working for equal rights. And a lot of that work took place in rural California, in places where Black ranchers and farmers not only impacted the state's agricultural landscape, but its civic culture too. Tune into our next episode called Cultivating Change, African-American homesteaders, innovators, and civic leaders to learn about these 19th century African-American rural settlers who, in pursuit of their California dream, became civic leaders that shaped the fabric of the state. Thanks for listening to the Calag Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts. And by the way, If you subscribe and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, it'll help other people discover it. Now, some important acknowledgments. We Are Not Strangers Here is a collaboration between Susan Anderson of the California African American Museum, the California Historical Society, Exhibit Envoy and Amy Cohen, myself, Dr. Caroline Collins from UC San Diego, and the Calag Roots Project at the California Institute for Rural Studies. Our traveling exhibit banners were written by Susan Anderson, our project's primary history advisor. And this podcast was written and produced by me with production help from Lucas Brady Woods. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for Humanities. Visit calhume.org to learn more. And the 11th Hour Project at the Schmidt Family Foundation. 